All right, well, today we're in Mark chapter 14, verse 66 to 72. Mark chapter 14, verse 66 to 72. If you can, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Mark chapter 14, verse 66. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Thank you. You may be seated. Today we're going to be talking about how Jesus transforms fear into faith. A couple weeks ago we saw that Peter had fallen asleep in the garden three times. How Peter denied Jesus now three times. And later Peter was asked by Jesus whether he loved him or not three times. There's a beautiful picture of failure and restoration of Peter in his interaction with Jesus during the Passion Week. A few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus agonized in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he had asked his three closest disciples to watch and pray along with him. And Peter was one of those disciples who sat down under a tree and let the cool breeze put him to sleep. He did not watch, and he did not pray, and just as Jesus predicted, he entered into temptation. He denied Jesus. Peter's denial is recorded in a strategic spot in the Passion account of Jesus. It is located between Jesus' trial before a Jewish Sanhedrin and Jesus' trial before Roman authority, Pilate. So Peter's denial is sandwiched by Mark between his two trials. And part of the reason is uh, that Peter's denial was happening simultaneously with Jesus' Jewish trial. So while that's going on, Peter's Peter's denying Jesus at the exact same time. But the other reason that it's sandwiched here is to contrast the responses of Peter and Jesus to their situations. So there's a stark contrast between Peter's cowardly denial on one hand and Jesus' courageous truth. Peter's panic with Jesus' peacefulness. Peter's, uh, Jesus stood before the highest Jewish and and Roman leaders in the land, and Peter sat before an unnamed servant girl. Jesus stood alone while Peter sat with others around a fire. And then based on verses 54 and 66, you can read them, I believe that these two events were happening simultaneously. Could it be that both men were asked questions concerning their identity at exactly the same time? Wouldn't that be something? So here's the contrast. There's situations. Jesus was received by the guards with blows, it says in verse 65. Jesus was alone in the middle of the high priest's villa, surrounded by armed guards, powerful members of the Sanhedrin. 
It was chilly. More than likely, Jesus was standing. And there's Peter. And Peter went right into the courtyard and sat down with the guards by the fire. Peter was on the fringe of what was happening, unknown by everyone there, and he was warming himself. So that's the situation. Then there's their interrogators. There was the high priest, arguably one of the most important and influential men in the Jewish society. He ranked above all the other priests and notable religious offices. He presided over this mock trial, and he was the one that could pronounce judgment on Jesus. And then he would pass Jesus on to the Roman official Pilate. And then on the other hand, there's the servant girl and unnamed bystanders. These were unimportant people. They took orders from others. They had no rank or position. In fact, the servant girl's testimony would not hold much weight, if any, in a court of law. And she and the bystanders in verse 70 were unable to pronounce judgment and unable to sentence Peter. Quite a contrast. And then there's the contrast of the questions. Jesus was asked by the high priest, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And there was no way out of this one for Jesus. If he answered falsely, then the Sanhedrin would have to look for another way to condemn him, yes, but he would, not, he would have been lying then. The perfect, truthful Son of God could not lie. And if he affirmed it, then he would be guilty based on, uh, on the basis of blasphemy. And Jesus, in face of all that, he calmly and courageously answered, I am. So Jesus was truthful, even though it resulted in his being condemned to death. And then there's Peter, was asked by a nameless servant girl, you were also with Jesus the Nazarene. Same situation for Peter. There's no way out of this for him either. If he answered falsely, he would be denying that he knew Jesus. A flat-out lie. He had been with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But if he answered truthfully, then he would be found out. Perhaps he was afraid of being hauled into the center of the mock trial and beaten and, and punched right along with Jesus. Or perhaps he thought he could better serve Jesus from where he was. Maybe he was trying to manufacture a plan that he could get Jesus released. And that would be a stretch, but in situations like that, we don't always think clearly or rationally. By the end of this off-the-record interrogation, Peter cowardly answered with curses and swearing, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And Peter lied to save his own skin. So quite a contrast between the two individuals. So now we come to our first point, Peter's denial in your outline, verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 6671. And there are three components of Jesus or of Peter's denial. Number one, he denied being with Jesus. He claimed that he didn't understand the question. He kind of played stupid the first time around, right? I don't know what you're talking about. He was embarrassed or concerned or both about associating with Jesus the Nazarene. And after he denied knowing Jesus, the cock crowed. According to how it's written, it would seem that Peter remembered hearing the cock crow for the first time. So Peter denied being with Jesus. And then Secondly, he denied being a disciple of Jesus. They said, this man is one of them. And now this servant girl was not just asking Peter directly, but she was beginning to make a small scene. She was poking shoulders and, and pointing his way and saying, look, this guy is one of Jesus' disciples. And Peter distanced himself from the whole group, from Jesus and the disciples, and by denying that he was one of them. So Peter denied being a disciple of Jesus. 
And then thirdly, he denied knowing Jesus altogether with curses and with an oath. The bystanders hear Peter's replies, and according to Matthew, they recognize him being as being a Galilean. So they conclude that he was with the band of disciples based on his accent. Why else would a Galilean be at trial in the middle of the night? He was not just some random dude that just happened to be there. So Peter invoked a curse on himself. It meant that Peter would have said something along these lines. God, do so to me and more if I am lying. I do not know the man that you are talking about. Such a sad scene. I swear to you by all that is good and holy that I do not know this man you're talking about. Peter denied even knowing Jesus. And the cock crowed a second time. Then there's this thing about Jesus' prophecy in chapter 14, verse 72. Verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. There's incredible irony in this story. If you look back at verse 65, the soldiers and the, and the leaders are mocking him and spitting on him and covering Jesus' face and, and hitting him in the head or the body or wherever, and they say, prophesy, prophesy to us. Tell us who just hit you. Tell us what is going to happen later today, because that's an easy one. You're going to be put to death. Tell us why you're going to die, because you just blaspheme. You claim to be God. If you are God, then tell us which one of us just hit you. If you are God, then prove it. If you are God, then why are you allowing me to hit you in the head? If you are a God, I wouldn't follow you. You're too weak and stupid to be a God. The least you could do is tell us which one of us just hit you. Tell us, prophesy. Little did they know that Jesus had just told a prophecy, actually a couple of them. Prophecies that were much more difficult to predict, much more unlikely to happen, much more revealing than naming the person who just hit you. Jesus had prophesied that he would be betrayed in chapter 14, verse 18, and it came true. Jesus had prophesied that all of his followers would fall away in chapter 14, verse 27, and it came true. And Jesus had prophesied that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed twice in chapter 14, verse 30, and this came true. Possibly at the very moment that Jesus was being beaten and told to prophesy. Can you imagine being Peter? There he was, out in the courtyard, sitting by the fire, warming himself. He was close enough that I'm sure he heard all that was going on in Jesus' trial. Simultaneously, Peter and Jesus are asked, Are you the Messiah? Are you a disciple of the Messiah, of Jesus? And Jesus answered, I am. And Peter answered, I do not know. I do not understand what you mean. And down outside the courtyard, both men could hear a, roast, a rooster crow. Because of Jesus' answer, the Sanhedrin condemned him to death. The soldiers and some of the Sanhedrin, and they, get, they had this pent-up frustration and anger inside of them because of all that went on that night. And they needed to get their aggression out, and so... They just, he's going to die anyway. They start to rough him up a bit. Someone hits him first. You think you're God? Take this. They slap him in the face and they spit on him, a sign of utter contempt and disdain. They had no respect for Jesus. They were treating him like a criminal, like an outcast, a worthless human being. And another came up and hit him, then another and another. And then one of them put a cloth over his head and began to beat him, saying, prophesy, who just hit you? You could hear the yelling and the sounds of fists striking flesh and the groans as the blows were being received. And, and Peter was asked in the midst of all this, certainly you, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. 
And Peter, in earshot of all this, cursed and swore and said, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And the cock crowed a second time. There's irony here. Jesus did prophesy just like the guards wanted him to, but the only ones in the vicinity who knew the truth were Jesus and Peter. In that moment, Jesus refused to stoop to the level of those Jesus refused to stoop to the level of those bloodthirsty leaders. He remained silent. And the consequences of which were that they battered and they assaulted Jesus. And Peter heard them taunting Jesus to prophesy. He knew Jesus could do it, and yet there he was allowing this to happen to him. Jesus calmed the storm. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He fed 5,000 people. He walked on water. Why wouldn't he stick up for himself? Why wouldn't he defend Peter and the other disciples? If there was ever a time to prove that he was the Messiah, to come and wipe out the Roman occupation, to rid Israel of corrupt corrupt leadership to establish himself as a king, this was the time to do it. Why wouldn't he just do what the Messiah was supposed to do? Rule and reign in righteousness and peace. Instead, violence and evil had the upper hand. The situation looked hopeless. And Peter knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the Messiah. Peter himself proclaimed that he believed Jesus was the Messiah in chapter 8, verse 29. Peter himself heard God's voice from heaven at the transfiguration of Jesus in chapter 9, verse 7. Peter himself went and got the donkey that Jesus triumphantly rode into Jerusalem on in chapter 11. And Jesus, in his trial for everyone to hear, had just claimed, and Peter heard this, had just claimed that he would come in the clouds as the Messiah to judge and to rule. Why was he waiting so long? What was going on? This was not how it was supposed to go. So Peter denied knowing Jesus, being a disciple, and being with Jesus. I wonder if possibly Peter heard all the commotion and the beatings and the mock trial and the false accusations and was like, what am I giving my life to? Jesus hasn't done a thing except allow himself to be condemned and die. I don't understand Jesus at all. I can't make sense of any of this. And in verse 68, no, I neither know nor understand what you mean. None of it made sense. I don't know this Jesus, the one that's being beaten and mocked and abused. The Lord do so to me and more if I am lying. I don't know the man of whom you speak. And Luke twenty-two sixty-one 61 says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Poor Peter. We're so hard on him. You know, but when I put myself in his shoes, I'm not so sure I would have done anything differently. He was trying so hard to understand and to believe. We forget that he was right there in the courtyard. He was the only one that was still there with Jesus. But the plans and the purposes of God were so beyond him, so beyond Jerusalem and beyond Judea and beyond Galilee and beyond Rome and beyond the moment and time that they were in, there was no way he could have understood in the moment that Jesus came to and saved the entire planet, past, present, and future. He did what any of us would have done. He caved. And at the moment, Jesus, God Almighty, the angels, the host of heaven, and all creation, they were silent, except for one rooster. And he crowed, reminding Peter of Jesus' life, of Jesus' power, of 
Jesus' miracles, of his teachings, of his love, of his friendship, of his prophecy. You know, Peter could have responded in the moment by jumping to Jesus' aid and trying to fix it all. He could have gotten busy and worked it out. He could have said, I'll figure out a way to carry on. I'll prove to him that I'm loyal and can do this on my own. He could have thought up a plan for how he could round up the disciples and carry on Jesus' mission once he was dead. Or he could have responded by becoming bitter at Jesus, resentful for the huge disappointment, frustrated at how it all went down. He could have given up on Jesus, thrown in a towel, said, God, this is not worth it. It's too painful. I don't see how this will change anything. I'm tired of evil winning, and I'm done. And neither of these responses demonstrates a humble and soft heart. Although Peter failed, I see in him a soft and humble heart. He had good soil in his heart. And I say that because of the very last phrase in our passage. It says he broke down and he wept. The word used here carries the meaning to cast upon, to throw oneself upon. It's used of waves rushing upon a ship. So all the emotion crashed down on Peter. All the uncertainty and the fear and the anxiety and the joy and the hope and the amazement and the wonder simply overwhelmed him and he broke. According to Matthew, he wept bitterly, violently. Peter sobbed and wept with convulsions. He didn't know what to do with it all. It was too much to take in. He didn't know what he was to do next. Where, where do I go from here? I like to think that this is where Peter broke. Peter, in this moment, in this circumstance, broke down in full surrender. Perhaps this is where Peter finally said, Not my will, but yours be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't know what to do now. I don't know where to go. I don't even know what to say. But I'll wait on you, Lord. And he ran out of the courtyard and he wept, and he surrendered. And then we have Peter's restoration, our last point. After his resurrection, Jesus was quick to affirm Peter. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 7, 16 and verse 7, after Jesus rises, he says, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. So Jesus specifically named Peter. To me, this is hugely significant. It says to me that Jesus understood Peter and where he had been at. He forgave Peter. He loved Peter, and he was not done with Peter. And he knew that Peter had, was already and had surrendered his will. After all, if Peter was still in denial of who Jesus was after the resurrection, he wouldn't have been the first to run to the empty tomb. After he looked inside the empty tomb, he went away marveling at what had happened, Luke chapter 24. He was also one of the first that Jesus appeared to once he had risen, Luke chapter 24, verse 34. And later on, Jesus ministered personally to Peter over breakfast on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, affirming Peter's importance and his important place in the plan of God. And we're going to read this incredibly merciful and gentle and gracious and reaffirming Interaction. It's from John chapter 21, 
verse 1 to 19. So if, if you can, turn there. It's going to be on the screen as well. I want you to listen to this incredible account. John chapter 21, starting verse 1. And after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. I'm going to pause there for a second. I think Peter just wanted to get away, to do something that he knew, something that was, he was good at, something that could keep his mind busy as well as his body, something that would allow him to exert some energy. He wanted the wind in his hair, the sound of the wooden boat under his feet, the taste of sweet water on his lips, and the feel of the rope in his calloused hands. Besides, what do most men do when they've had enough of life? We go fishing, don't we? At least some of us. Some of us, we go in the woods or we climb a mountain or whatever. Peter was just like us. He needed a moment to get away, to clear his head. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, and that would be John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. just want to pause there. Jesus met the disciples where they were at. Jesus met Peter where he was at. He came to them out in the wild. And you know what? He didn't scold them. He didn't give them a Bible lesson. He didn't make it a teachable moment. He didn't even post it on Facebook. He didn't even explain it all. He didn't grab the whiteboard and show them the plan. This wasn't the time for that. Jesus is sensitive and understanding. He didn't do anything that you would think that a God who had just risen from the dead and was now going to reign from heaven over a new kingdom would do. He asked them to bring him some fish that they'd caught. He built a fire. He gutted the fish. He cooked the fish. Oh, and the count that they pulled in was 153. Even Jesus likes a good fish story. He gave them the bread and the fish. They sat there eating, talking, laughing. No agenda, no minutes. 
No hurry, no urgency, no busyness of ministry. Just a breakfast on a lone beach shared among friends who had pretty much been to hell and back. There was understanding, there was mutuality, there was unspoken love and friendship and respect and remorse. There was also joy and sadness and known and unknown. All of that was mixed up together. I can't wait to meet this Jesus face to face, this sensitive God who understands us. Verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus pulls Peter aside and he asked him three questions. And I believe that each of these questions correspond to each of Peter's denials. In each question, Jesus calls him Simon, son of John. The name John means Jehovah is a gracious giver. Jehovah is a gracious giver. So God is a gracious giver of forgiveness, of second chances, of true, unmerited undying, undeserved love. Because God is this way, Jesus could go on to Peter and say, follow me, verse 19. I love this ending. The first words that, Peter, or that Jesus spoke to Peter three years earlier along the, the seashore were the same words that Jesus spoke to Peter at the very end, along the same seashore. Follow me. So Peter's denial didn't disqualify him. His cowardice did not sideline him. Peter's failure did not remove the initial call of Jesus upon his life. Jesus again extended his hand and with a twinkle in his eye, he looked at Peter's, into Peter's eyes and in spite of all that just happened, he invited him again. Follow me, Peter. Gregory the Great said this concerning Peter's denial. Church father, Gregory the Great. And here we must ask ourselves, why did the Almighty God permit the one who had, whom he had placed over the whole church be frightened by the voice of a maidservant and even to deny Christ himself? This we know was a great dispensation of the divine mercy so that he who was to be the shepherd of the church might learn through his own fall to have compassion on others. To learn through his own weakness how to bear mercifully with the weakness of others. And we know the rest of the story. From Peter's brokenness came a radical new courage. Boldness of speech, 
confidence in the resurrection, compassion for those who were weak, mercy for those who did him wrong. God gave him strong roots held firmly by the Spirit and fruit. Oh, so much marvelous fruit. And I think there's much for us to learn in this. And I hope that in just hearing this story, the Spirit of God is, is doing a work in your hearts, encouraging and convicting and affirming you in your faith. But in closing, I want to bring our attention to, the, to three concepts. The concept of brokenness and surrender and restoration. Brokenness first. Jesus broke bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. So Jesus' body was broken. He experienced physical pain, emotional pain, all the pain that we do. But through Jesus' brokenness, life was given to all who would believe. Brokenness is a part of every great story of faith. You think of Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David and Jeremiah and now Jesus and Peter. Peter broke when he experienced great emotional and psychological pain from his denial of Jesus. He had denied his Savior. He had turned on his closest friend. He had fallen away from the way of love, the way that he said he was going to give his life to. He said he was going to die for Jesus. You know, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In the germination process of a seed, the seed goes into the ground and then it cracks open. It breaks. And then it sends out the first shoot. And it's called the radical. But the seed must break before it can begin to grow into something new. And I believe that there's a time in each of our lives, and sometimes for the more thick-headed of us, uh, there are multiple times when God puts us through trials so that we break. Only after we've broken do we begin to grow radically. If you've been broken, if you've failed, if you have fallen away, if you've denied Jesus, it's actually part of the process. Jesus is not done with you. He who once said, follow me, is saying it to you again. The question remains, do you love him? Will you follow him? And then there's this idea of surrender. Surrender is tough. I think it's tougher than being broken. Some of us are stubborn enough that we can be broken but never surrender ourselves to God. For many of us, we want to do it on our own. Perhaps you're one trying to fix it. You have gotten super busy doing all that you can to work it out. Perhaps you have said, I've got this, I'll figure it out, I'll prove to Jesus that I can do this Christian life on my own. Or maybe instead of that, you've become bitter at Jesus, resentful for all that he's put you through, all the breaking and the trials, full of shame, not being good enough, and you're denying him. Maybe you are super disappointed, frustrating at how things are going down for you in life. You can never catch a break. Maybe you've given up on Jesus and said, God, this is not worth it. It's too painful. I'm done. Let me encourage you that surrender to the will of God is difficult, but it is necessary, and it is life-changing. It's life-giving. Jesus surrendered in the Garden of Gethsemane. That was the struggle. He had to submit his will to the will of the Father. He was tempted to come up with another solution, to fix it on his own, to figure another way out. He said, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He, he was like, give me another way. 
yet not what I will, but what you will. And Jesus had to resign himself to God's plan and not only say, not my will, but yours be done, but he had to act on that premise, surrender. Jesus had to struggle with frustration and disappointment. He had to say, may your kingdom come and your will be done, and then do it. And Peter struggled too. That is why he denied Jesus. He was protecting himself. He, he thought that he knew of a better way. He chose safety over his friend. When he broke down and wept, he finally surrendered his dreams and hopes for how it would all turn out to the Father. He surrendered his will and his way to the will and the way of Jesus. The question before you is, is there an area in your life where you need to surrender to Jesus? Where do you need to surrender your will to the will of the Father? Perhaps you need to surrender your propensity to try to control everything. Control outcomes, control fears and anxieties, control behaviors of others. Or perhaps you have a death grip hold on financial security and you need to surrender your finances to the Lord. Or perhaps it's raising perfect children. You need to surrender the process of raising your children to the Lord. Or perhaps it's trying to hold it all together in this crazy time. Holding on to certain relationships, holding on to that job, holding on to the dream that you had for life, and you just need to surrender that to the will of the Father. Will you surrender that area to Jesus? In other words, will you follow him? Simon, do you love me more than these? Only you can answer that question. And then there's this idea of restoration. In the new year, we're going to be working our way through the book of Acts. And Acts follows the ministries of Peter and Paul after Jesus' resurrection. Both men were complete failures at the beginning. Both men were broken and humbled. Both men were hugely instrumental in the foundation of the church. And as we go through Acts, we're going to look at the concept of how Jesus takes failures and transforms them into fearless witnesses of his. Following Jesus for them became an all-encompassing lifestyle. Being an apostle wasn't a hobby. It was a habit. It was a calling. It was what they lived for. Restoration is the work of the Holy Spirit. Through our mustard-sized seed of faith, Jesus forgives us, and the Father justifies us, and the Spirit begins a radical change in our lives. What happened to Peter by the work of the Spirit following his denial and then Jesus' resurrection is nothing less than remarkable. Doubt turned to conviction. Denial turned to bold witness. Fear turned to faith. Cowardice turned to courage. Uncertainty turned into hope. Callousness turned into compassion. Jesus transformed Peter's fear into incredible faith. And this is what the Spirit, of want, Spirit wants to do in each one of us. When we break and surrender to him, he roots us firmly and deeply in his life-giving and life-changing hope. He, hope takes root in our hearts. It nourishes us and encourages us and strengthens us even when we're not even consciously aware of it. And then the Spirit begins to produce fruit in us and through us. And because we've been broken, there's little in the way hindering the Spirit from doing his work through us to those around us. We can empathize with the weaknesses of others. The Spirit gives us compassion for others and patience for them in their weakness and in their failures. The Spirit transforms our fear into faith, our timidity into courage, our pessimism into hope, our denial into mercy. And the Spirit gives us boldness, gives us words to say, gives us love for the unlovable, gives us hope for the hopeless, 
gives us joy that's contagious. The Spirit enables us to love as Jesus loved because we have nothing, because we have the same hope of Jesus inside of us. And people with hope have nothing to fear because we've got nothing to lose. We've got everything to gain. But we have a choice. Even after we've broken, Jesus stands there with a glint in his eye with his hand outstretched and he says, follow me. Don't throw away his invitation. Don't forget all the love and mercy and compassion and grace and forgiveness that he has shown to you. Surrender to him. Follow him. Show mercy and compassion and love to others. Love as Jesus loved you. After all, perfect love casts out all fear. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this story. This story of failure but complete restoration. It's amazing how low Peter got, but then what you used him for in the future. God, some of us in this room might be very, very low right now. We might be ready to walk out and say, we're never coming back. We may have just got off a week where we denied you, where we said, forget it, I'm done. Thank you for the undying love of Jesus. Thank you that he says, I'm going to give you a second chance. Follow me. And thank you for this story that proves that if we just surrender and follow you, you can do marvelous things through us. I pray that that would be true of each one in this room. That we would surrender to Jesus who really does love us more than anyone else. Who has our good in mind. Who is our protector. Who is our savior. Who is our king. Who is our God. Who, who will never leave us or forsake us. Even when we leave him and forsake him. Thank you for him. I pray that we'll go from here in the strength of this story. May we take courage from the story of Peter and the mercy and grace of Jesus. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Why don't you stand for the benediction? I'll remind you to drop your offerings in the, in the boxes as you leave and stay for coffee and enjoy some time with one another and fellowship with one another. Receive this benediction from 2 Corinthians 9.8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Thank you. Have a good week. You are dismissed.